this month, we're excited to welcome Dr. Tosh Dean, who is one of our site directors for psychiatry, as well as the director for the psychiatry unit at the VA Hudson Valley. He also works in the psych ED at Westchester Medical Center. Dr. Dean went to medical school in Pakistan and came to the U.S. for residency at Maimonides, where he was chief resident and started teaching there to students from SUNY Downstate, NICOM, and St. George. For a while, Dr. Dean worked at Jacoby on the acute psych unit, where he was also clerkship director for Einstein, and has since moved to New York Medical College, where he now works at the Maris VA. He's also won numerous awards from students, including a teaching award from GHHS, so we're very lucky to have him as a site director and very excited to welcome him for this interview. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Dean. So our first question for you is, what are three good things that happened to you this week? This week? Well, definitely one one positive was a patient who's got uh, a very, very tragic history who I was treating on my unit. Uh, You guys might have even worked with him when you were there uh, without doing any confidentiality issues. He had a very, very difficult history when he was uh, a teenager, like he was, I think, 15 years old. He walked into his uh, father's room when his father had committed suicide and he was hanging. So this poor kid, since that time, he had a lot of emotional problems and he ended up three years in a psychiatric institution. And then at age 18, he got uh, recruited by the, you know, the military recruiters who told him that, you know, you've been in and out of trouble because you never had a real family or a role model. You should come in and we will give you the family you never had and we'll help you, you know, we'll make a man out of you. Poor guy goes into the military and then right away was sent to Afghanistan and Iraq for, you know, uh, deployments where he had really, really bad experiences. And, uh, you know, he had TBIs. He had, in fact, he also had military sexual trauma. He got raped there. And uh, just a horrible experience and a lot of traumatic experience causing PTSD. Then he comes back. He has more, you know, psychiatric breakdowns in and out of hospitals. During this these years, he also lost his brother to an overdose of heroin, accidental overdose. And then a few years later, his mother died in his own arms with cancer. So he had a horrible history, and poor guy has, on top of that, besides the schizoaffective disorder, he also has chronic PTSD. And so I was, I've treated him several times at this hospital. I mean, a lot of your, your classmates may have worked with him over the years, but uh, like every few months, you know, he'll come to my unit and I'll, I'll treat him in a state of acute decompensation. So this time I was treating him for the last few months, and finally, finally, he got better. And I discharged him. So that was definitely such a nice moment. And my God, the, the day he was leaving, you know, how he was thankful to everybody. And uh, you know, that was very fulfilling, you know. I mean, uh, the poor guy has nobody, you know, because he lives like in a fantasy land, you know, so much so that in his, in his own fantasy, he was talking about how he loves his, like we are, like his other families. And, and he says, you know, when I, when I write my will, I want to write you guys, your, your name. <laughs> So we said, no, 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 don't worry. You know, we're just happy that you're doing good. You know, so that was that was a nice thing that happened, of course. And um, let's see what else. Oh, uh, one of my uh, extended family in Los Angeles, of course. My uh, my cousin. There are like ten people in his family. He is older than me. Him 
his wife, his daughter, his daughter's husband, his son, and his son's husband, a uh, son's wife, and both kids have two kids, small kids. All ten of them had COVID, oh, and no. it was really horrible. Thank God they all got better, but her son-in-law, who is a young athletic guy, like in his mid-thirties, with two small mm-hmm. daughters, he got really, really sick, and he was. I mean, he was taken to the hospital, and yeah. I cannot believe that they discharged him with an 86 pulse ox. They did not admit really? him. Yes, because that time it was so bad. They were just trying to say, oh, you're a young guy. You, you'll be okay. Here's a Z-Pack. Take Z-Pack. And, and then the poor guy, they kept him for a few hours, gave him a little nebulizer treatment. And then they said, oh, yeah, yeah, your, your pulse ox is better now. Of course, temporarily was better. Now he came home, and five days later, he got so sick that they had to go to the hospital. He got admitted into the hospital and it was really, really bad with pneumonia. And we were so scared. Every day I used to talk to his family. They were crying. I was trying to give them some, you know, support and therapy. And uh, poor guy, he was just looking around. All, all other patients were dying every other day. And he has two little daughters. I mean, it was just horrible. But after, I think, staying in the hospital for about a week or so, he finally got discharged. Okay. So that was a really nice feeling. We all were so grateful. You know, those two things were really good. And um, other, the third thing, I guess I survived the snowstorm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I mean, I, I mean, we didn't go to work yesterday. We worked remotely, so through mm-hmm. uh, telepsychiatry, we did all that. But today in the morning, I uh, you know dug out and. Made it in one piece. So, so that is that is a good third thing. Okay, our next question for you is: We want to know what wellness means to you, because a lot of people have different definitions of it. So, wellness, obviously, uh, to me, it is uh, definitely both. You know, physical and emotional. I'm big on emotional well-being, and uh, also, if you remember my favorite term, I used to tell you guys that I tell all my students and my residents to be mindful of their emotional temperature and every now and then keep keep checking your emotional temperature. In fact, my my big, big point talking to patients and their families, and of course to my my students and residents, is that we need to destigmatize the whole concept of emotional wellness and mental illness because people always are scared to talk about that, and they would easily talk about their diabetes, they would talk about their hypertension, but they would be very nervous talking about even depression or anxiety. And I try to educate patients, their families, and my students that, look, when there's no shame in having diabetes, in having uh, uh, epilepsy, or having COPD, similarly, there should not be any shame in having mental illness. And for that matter, a lot of my friends who are in medicine and uh, you know other specialties, they often joke with me and say, "Hey, come on, well, well, what do you guys do? You don't treat anybody with schizophrenia or depression or bipolar. You guys just manage them." So then I kind of point out to them, "Yeah, when was the last time you cured somebody of diabetes or hypertension or hyperlipidemia?" I mean, so the the point is that you know, just like I, I tell my my patients that look, there is no shame. If you have diabetes, you know, uh, uh, you you take care of, of your condition by staying away from certain things and taking your insulin or your oral hypoglycemics and keeping an eye on your sugar and having a healthy lifestyle. 
just like that, there should not be any shame in accepting that, yes, you have mental illness like depression, anxiety, whatever, and taking care of that by going for your therapy and your medications and staying away from certain things which are dangerous. For example, in my patient's case, like, you know, my the one I talked to you about, that young guy, you know, every time he, he uses marijuana, his, his psychosis gets really bad, you know? So I try to educate him that, look, uh, you your average friends can use and handle that, but you your brain cannot handle that. So overall idea of wellness for me is definitely both physical, but a big emphasis on emotional wellness. And a big part of that is trying to destigmatize the whole emotional unwellness, so to say, right? The, Ill, the mental illness, destigmatize both uh, for patients, their family members, and our medical community itself. As I told you how many challenges we, we see in our medical community, right? So that's my, my big, you know, like my feeling about wellness is to, to have an overall wellness, physical and emotional, and being, you know, able to look yourself in the mirror and say, you know, I'm taking care of myself in all areas. And a part of that is kind of you, not you alone, your body, your being, but you're part of whatever is around you, family, friends, colleagues, your classmates. And that's what I always tell you guys about, that not only keep an eye on your wellness, uh, checking your emotional temperature, but keep an eye on people around you, whether they are your family members, your loved ones, or your colleagues, you know, your classmates, your co-workers. So we have a certain responsibility about taking care of our wellness and the wellness around us. So you always talk about measuring your emotional temperature. Do you have advice for students about how to go about doing that? Because we're so busy all the time, it's kind of hard to check in. You know, a lot of us, especially us in the medical field, you know, obviously, you know, we have enough pressure, enough stress in our life to begin with. Um, but unfortunately, sometimes we fall into this trap of putting more unnecessary pressure on ourselves and sometimes making some such like unnecessary, very, very high goals. And again, look, it's good to be ambitious and, and have good, good future, you know, goals. But we, we need to have some kind of a balance, you know, so that, you know, that we're not putting so much load and pressure on ourselves that we are already putting ourselves in the, like, as I, as you recall, recall that, you know, I mentioned to you, I'm a big sports guy, right? So we, we always talk about in sports that, you know, a, a good manager or a coach has to put his players into the best position to succeed. Right. So just if you are a life coach for yourself or for your loved ones, you want to put yourself in the best position to succeed by putting so much burden and so much unnecessary pressure and, you know, goals that like I, I told you that example that, you know, during the time for the match or, you know, medical students, when they are applying for like from, from pre-med, you're applying for medical schools. Sometimes there is so much pressure that, oh, my God. It's like the, the absolute greatest Ivy League school or complete bust. Then otherwise, if I don't get into blah, 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 otherwise I'm a failure. That is really, really a trap that we want to watch out for and not to fall into that. And the main reason I always talked about this, if you recall that, you know, over the years I have had 
so many experiences and so many situations that I've unfortunately had to 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 get involved uh, uh, with my medical students and my own residents and interns. As I I mentioned to you earlier, that when I was in Einstein for for twenty years, the I, I was the same clerkship uh, director of the the third year medical students there, the site director. I used to work closely with the dean of students in Einstein, and then. For the past several years, I also have worked often, you know, uh, the dean of students in the past with uh, at, at New York Medical College also. That uh, you know, I I would often you know uh, uh, be asked to kind of like help out in in a difficult situation with the medical student, or also I've I've had to be involved in in you know dealing with a crisis with a resident. And look, we're all human, and as I mentioned to you guys earlier, that. Mental illness does not pick and choose. Uh, you know, uh, anyone who is a very high-functioning medical professional, or somebody who is a very low-functioning, you know, person who is just like a, a basic, like you know, um, you know, minimum wage worker, anyone can can have a, a challenge with a mental illness. So what I, I have seen over the years is so many difficult, difficult uh, situations with residents, interns, and students that at times, you know, they, was, they were involved in some serious crisis that I, I even had to help with their treatment sometimes, just like, you know, therapy and, and outpatient treatment and medication. But there were times when it was such a serious crisis that we had to arrange for hospitalization of students, residents, interns. And thank God, you know, they got the right help and they got better. But most of the time, I see that if you look back at your life or I look back at my life, any, any average person in a medical field, you know, we, we, we take the longest, most winding road, right? I mean, imagine from, from high school, oh my God, doing all kinds of, you know, I mean, I, I saw my own son go through that, you know? I mean, at least I, I went through this in a foreign country, which was definitely different from you guys. But of course, challenges were, you know, I mean, any, any society. So, I mean, you guys go through all your, you know, ACTs and SATs and all the AP classes, honor classes. Oh my God, you have to make all these, you know, grades, GPAs and all that. And then you have this, this, this huge pressure of getting into a good college, all, all that stress. Now you get into the college, you have not even time to celebrate or, or breathe. And okay, now, oh my God, now you have to maintain this GPA. You have to have, uh, you know, your uh, MCATs and uh, you have to have so much, this much score so that you can get into uh, 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 your medical school. And of course, it has to be the best medical school. Otherwise, what will people say? What will my parents say? What will my aunt and uncle say? So that's, that's the unnecessary pressure that we create. And uh, so that, and then of course, once you are in medical school, then you've got your whole, you know, step one, step two. And even when you, when you are done with med school, then the stress is the residency getting into the match. And I told you that example of that poor, uh, you know, student I had to help who just before the 15th of match, you know, when he had a breakdown. So um, that time is a very stressful time. And once you start your residency, then there's, you know, the stress doesn't end. Then, you know, my God, surviving your, your calls, your, your patients, and of course, trying to pass your step three so you get your license. And guess what? You become an attending. Then you got your stupid board exams to look forward to. <laughs> that never ends, you know, rest of your life every 10 years. I still keep doing it every 10 years, you know. So, so the idea is that, you know, it never ends. So there has to be some kind of a balance that you can have an outlet. Like I, I mentioned to you guys in the past, 
you need to have medicine. The medical field should not be the only thing that you know that is defining you. That is not the only thing you you do. You you're going to be a doctor, but that should not be the only thing. You need to have some other outlet, some other interest, and some time for yourself. So it's hard not to take work home with you because obviously, if you see a very difficult, challenging situation, it kind of stays with you, you know, sometimes. But try your best to leave that at work. And then when you go home, at least you have something that you're really, really interested and excited about. You know, like I told you my example with the sports or whatever, politics, music, movies, whatever. So do something else, which is fun and spending time with family, of course. So those are the things that I definitely try to you know, tell uh, the students and residents to keep really uh, in mind. Why? Because I've seen really, really bad outcomes and very, very sad situations with residents, students, interns, everyone. You know? And always remember, uh, a crisis like that, mental illness, it just does not only affect that one person, the whole family, the whole family. I've seen, you know, when when a young person gets diagnosed first time with a serious mental illness, the entire family goes through a grieving process. And uh, I try to spend as much time I can with their family because they need so much support because the whole family struggles through that. You know, It's almost like, God forbid, somebody has cancer, right? The whole family is going through that, you know? So so those are the things that we have to keep in mind that, you know, you spend time with your family, you know, not only uh, uh, to, to make sure that how are they doing and how is your, you know, uh, 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 bond with them. You know? So those are very important things to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. So do you think it's different finding that balance at different parts of your career? Yeah, every part of your career has its own challenges, of course. And there are these um, moments of, you know, the old slippery slope kind of thing when you tend to get more selfish. I don't have time for them. You know, I got enough thing to worry about my own life and my own stress, right? And sim- similarly, uh, you know, you could get selfish about not paying attention to a, a colleague who might be struggling because, you know, you're so overwhelmed and in your own bubble that this is all you are thinking about, your your upcoming exam or your match or this or that. So that is where, you know, in different stages, you have different challenges. Of course, during medical school time, you know, it was really, really hard with studies, you know, I mean, because you thought this is it. If I don't make it, that's it. Life is over. You know, that's the end. So, so that's how a lot of us feel. And I do remember my own time. My God, it was, and that was back home in Pakistan where one interesting thing, it was a poor country, developing country, but the education was free. So like you guys have to worry about student loans, which is a big challenge. At least we didn't have that stress, but we had to make the cut. You know, like I remember in my state, I think there were like about 650 students. If the first 650 According to merit, if you make it, that's it. You get a free ride. If you don't, then that's it. You know, go to something else, you know. So that was stressful, my God. Like, so often you would not have any time for anyone around you to even look what's happening, your friends, your family members. But the key is that, you know, it's not like you are doing them a favor by seeing how they're doing. Those can be your strength, you know. That support, it's mutual. That's the key, you know. So just like your own colleague, like if you have a good friend, you know, you can be so busy. You have no time to see how she, your friend is doing. Uh, is she going through a difficult time? But guess what? By spending time with her and sharing each other's challenges, you are gaining that support from her too. 
by giving her your empathy, you're receiving her. So it's it's a two-way street, you know? So, it, you know, you one might think that, oh my God, I don't have time to be taking care of these people in my life. I have too much stress. But hello, by you engaging with them, it's, you know, you're receiving also, not just giving, you know? So that's the key. So one thing I want to ask you is, you give this talk at the end of every rotation. I think it's a great talk and I think everybody needs to hear it. You talk about looking yeah. out for your colleagues and your peers. Um, so how would you tell us to think about identifying someone who is struggling? Because med students and doctors are really high functioning. A lot of times they're really able to hide it if they're struggling. Um, and we're not sitting around doing siggy caps on everyone. <laughs> of course. So what happens that people have different barriers, meaning different uh, uh, defenses, right? So obviously an average colleague of yours, average uh, uh, friend is not going to let go of their defenses, you know, if you are not so close to them, obviously. So there are different levels. What uh, somebody who is a close friend of yours or your roommate will open up more to you and you will see uh, if they are in pain, you will, it's much easier to pick that up, right? As opposed to just a, a person who's just doing the rotation with you for these next three weeks, right? Four weeks. But a simple example uh, in residency, because, you know, I, I supervise a whole lot of residents who are, and, you know, every Saturday I'm on call over there at Westchester Medical Center. Every every Tuesday I'm there in the evening. And there are some, sometimes that it is so bad, like literally and almost, I would say, every two, three weeks, at least on a monthly basis, I see this, you know any resident who's on call, because there's always a junior and a senior. The senior is in the ER, the junior is on the floors. And every now and then, there would be a whole bunch of codes or a whole bunch of admissions will happen, difficult cases, or some patients getting out of control. And on top of that, you know, the nurses are paging, paging the rest, paging, and, you know, five pages at the same time, you know, from different wards. No, I need you stat. No, the other one says, I need you stat. And there's only one poor resident. How many places? So there are literally... Every few weeks, I see a resident will just like get really upset and just start to cry. And of course, I'm there as an attending. I can try to be supportive. Sometimes I see there's a fellow resident who will, I mean, I've actually seen that. I'm so proud. And, uh, you know, I tell these guys that, you know, you guys over the years, the program has become so much better that they are very, like, really conscious and caring with each other. Like a resident had three, four codes or three, four admissions within one shift. So one of the fellow residents will sit down and say, it's okay, take a deep breath. Let me let me help you with the admission orders. Okay, so you get a little break. Hey, just, just sit down, take a deep breath. Here, grab the sandwich. Let me help you with these orders. The other day I was in exactly this situation a couple of weeks ago, and one of the residents was really overwhelmed. I, I tried to help a little bit, but then I uh, had to go and, and see uh, a patient on a different ward for something. So when I come down, I was hearing that this resident was was talking to somebody. Apparently, there was a, another resident from home FaceTime and helping this resident do that admission and going through, okay, now you do this, now you do this, you know, because it was a senior and a junior. And that that senior resident stayed with this resident close to 45 minutes on FaceTime helping. So you are in, in medical school and imagine you are doing your sub-internship or something like, you know, and uh, another classmate had a very rough call or just like, say, oh my God, I can't do this. I, and oh, you know, it's okay, relax. You know, I had a difficult call last week also. Yes, you can do this. Just a little pep talk, you know. All right, 
here, let me grab you, you know, some Starbucks, all right? Here, let's sit down. Let's let's take a five-minute breathing. So, you know, just those most, you know, vulnerable moments when somebody's close to their breaking point, a little help, a few minutes of empathy sometimes can stop that vicious cycle. Who knows what might have happened? So those are simple things. But of course, those people you're very close to, like say your good friend or your your classmate, I mean, uh, your roommate, those students you're more close to, they can maybe share more. They would lower their defenses and share more with you. You can show some empathy there. So there are different levels of involvement that you can have. But at each level, if the primary focus is being uh, empathetic towards them, just sometimes just listen, you know, just let them vent. And even that decompresses them, you know. So just anything you can do a little bit to to be supportive, that can sometimes make a huge difference, you know. Yeah, definitely. What if you're in a situation where you think somebody might need a little bit more help? Like, how would you broach that topic with them? Because there's still a lot of stigma for a lot of people. Exactly. Very true. So, yes, there are about like maybe seven, eight years ago, we had done like a, a little bit of a like unofficial study at Einstein. And uh, one of my colleagues used to actually treat some of the uh, students. And she was telling me that, you know, you are going to be shocked how many medical students are going through stress and are in treatment, either just therapy or sometimes medication also. Because when they start to, uh, you know, share their feelings with each other, then they hear, guess what? My buddy here, he's talking to somebody, he's getting some help. And they say, you know what? It's made a big difference. Then the other one's uh, uh, nervousness or, or shyness or whatever you call the initial defense, it kind of softens up. Oh, you know what? Maybe I can. And this is how, you know. So sometimes, you know, the, the stigma breaks as they see more and they hear more. They say, you know what? Maybe it's not that bad. My, my buddy went and got some therapy. It helped him or, or took some medicine. You know, we have to have enough education that it doesn't mean if you are going through a difficult phase and you need some medication, it doesn't mean it's going to be for life. You know, sometimes people get help and after a few months or a year, they get better and it's in the past. So by sharing this, people kind of gain strength from each other. So you also talked about this a little bit earlier, but how do you deal with the stigma for patients as well? Yeah, uh, you mean how do you uh, uh, give some some uh, psychoeducation to a patient who's worried about asking for help, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's that's definitely a challenge. And sometimes what I would do is I would try to have not only just a talk with the patient, but try to have a family meeting with the patient and their main loved one, right? Because sometimes it is coming from the patient sometimes it is kind of a little bit of a projection or a reflection from you know from their family also and it's like a combined anxiety which is you are only seeing it from the patient so what i try to educate them the same way that look the the uh, whole concept of mental illness has a medical explanation you know obviously i'm not going to teach them neurotransmitters but i can at least explain to them that look even people who have depression or anxiety or psychosis there is a clear medical explanation there are certain neurotransmitters in our brain that sometimes they are not in the right balance you know and there's a certain deficiency and whatnot and we we actually give the right medication to help fix that problem and also different kinds of therapy and uh, and there are learned uh, 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 you know coping skills that people use you know different uh, therapies 
you know, behavior modification and all that. And they help in improving, you know, their situation, just like, and then I give them the same example, just like, you know, there is no stigma or shame in asking for help with a serious medical condition, just like that. Those things have long-term, you know, treatment requirements, right? But just like there is no shame in in, uh, um, asking for help and getting help and being consistently compliant, the only reason is that you are able to understand and accept that, that there is a medical cause and basis of that. That's why religiously you go and you take your medication and go to your GI appointments or endocrine appointment. Just like that, I try to educate them that there is a medical explanation for your mental illness and there is no shame in that. Just compare yourself to that diabetic or the epileptic guy. He is responsible in taking his meds, going to his appointment, checking his, his sugar, just like and staying away from ice cream or sugars, just like that, you'll be responsible in staying away from alcohol or drugs, taking your medication, going for your appointments, and like that. So I try to kind of like, you know, give them that little comparison. And that only works if you involve their support system. There is a particular term in you might have read, especially in schizophrenia, that the families have this high EE. What is EE? Expressed emotion. Those cases where the expressed emotion from family members and support systems is very high, those cases, the prognosis tends to be poor. Why? Because they are overly critical and overly demanding and expecting so much from, you know, the old saying that a family member will just tell a poor patient, just stop being depressed, cut it out, be a man, enough is enough. I mean, hello, if it was only that simple. So this is what I try to educate the family members. And listen, half of the battle is going to be from his side. The other half is from your side. If you are supportive and understanding and don't put so much pressure on him, please understand. It's not like he, he can control this, that he can turn off the knob. That, oh, let me just try to be less depressed. I mean, let me just try to become stronger. It is not so simple. There's a biological explanation. So if I can explain to the family. So I try to do sometimes like a lot of the, uh, patients when they are being discharged, I make sure that their patient, their families come to pick them up and I'll do like a, a little talk, like maybe 15, 20 minutes before I discharge them. So both parties are on the same page and they understand what challenges are going to be facing them. That makes a big difference in future outcome and prognosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's so easy to forget that, even though we technically know the background of uh, psychiatry and it just requires so much patience yeah and also realize there's one more big element in all all of this that element we all have to be uh, 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 cognizant of and not be uh, uh, naive or, or in denial that element is a cultural and ethnic element because look people deal with mental illness differently in every culture so so if we uh, know a little we try to educate ourselves a little bit about all mm-hmm. different cultures and uh, ethnicities and try to be understanding i mean you know that's the great beauty of this country that you know we have such diversity especially living in new york my god or los angeles for that matter right you will have so diversity so any specialty you go in even if you become an obgyn doctor you become a surgeon or, or a pediatrician you mm-hmm. want to make sure that when you are dealing with a patient and their family members, because I feel that that is the whole package, you should try to understand their you know, 
cultural and uh, uh, ethnic, uh, you know, background, meaning their preferences and their vulnerabilities, you know, and their, their difficulties and challenges. Because in some cultures, oh my God, it is like an absolute, if you even talk about in some cultures about a female, especially, I mean, they say, oh my God, she will never get married. That's it. That's the end of her life. So you have to be very, very understanding how to educate them and how to keep their difficulties and challenges in your mind so you can understand that, you know, how you can relate with them and, and psychoeducate them, you know. And, uh, and you know, the funny thing is that being there, you can understand. But even here, second and third generation in America, you know, second and third generation uh, Chinese or Korean or Japanese or Indian, Pakistani, Bangladesh, they are still, even though they might be several generations into, into this country, still those challenges are there. And we have to be very much mindful of that, you know. Of course, even in America, I mean, you think like people are openly talking about their mental illness, you know. So the ethnic understanding, the cultural understanding, getting a handle or being aware of the diversity is very, very important, you know? especially in psychiatry, for any specialty for that matter, but especially in psychiatry. Mm-hmm. I think those challenges, though, aren't just ethnic and cultural, like I think we have a lot of issues in the medical community as well, because I've noticed people don't like to take consults in psychiatry. They try to avoid the psych ward still. So I don't know if you have any ideas about how we could deal with that and destigmatize that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, a lot of students would be on on the uh, other side. They would be uh, in the medical building and they'll get a call from the site building that, hey, uh, like we need an endocrine consult for somebody who's admitted to psychiatry with unstable diabetes or someone needs an orthopedic consult because someone has a broken leg or something in psychiatry. And whatever specialty on the other side, as soon as they hear, oh, I have to do a site consult in that site building. Oh, my God. And I'm not even exaggerating. So many students and residents have told me that. And I've seen myself. The first response would be, oh my God, I want to go to that crazy building. Oh my God, a unique place. I hate going there. It's a locked place. They're all so needy and they're all mental. Uh, Hello? I mean, come on. So that is the response. Imagine that is the response from the medical professionals. What are we going to expect from general society when it is so bad in the medical community? And I told you the examples that there are poor psych patients who come into medical ERs, especially, I mean, you know, I've seen it in Jacobia. I've seen it in, in Westchester Medical Center. And they're only crime is that they have a history of mental illness, but they're coming for a genuine medical problem, some serious pain or some other dizziness or something, but nobody takes them seriously. And you know what? After a brief ER encounter, you know, the comment would be, oh, this is all mental. It's psychosomatic. And they'll just call psych counsel. And we will say, the poor person has a genuine medical complaint. Can you at least address that? At least call a neuro counsel because this is XYZ is going on or call, you know, such and such. Oh, no, no, it's all in the head. You know, they're just crazy. You know, this is the response you're getting from the medical community. So that is the sad part. And I, I and I, I tell these students that, look, you guys will all, you know, go on to have great careers and not everybody goes into psychiatry, you know, whatever specialty you go into, whether medicine, surgery, OB, pediatric, if you can start destigmatizing, I mean, in their heart, and with their, you know, future dealings with other colleagues, if you guys, after working four weeks, can be advocates for for these poor, helpless, the voiceless, you know, psych patients, you know, then at least you, if you see them and you see a patient who's got some genuine medical issues, but because the patient happens to be a bipolar or schizoaffective patient, no one's taking that patient seriously. You can be the advocate for them and, you know, take, not only take them seriously, but at least, you know, you know, tell your colleagues, no, this, this one at least deserves, you know, our empathy and we can give him proper care. 
any anywhere we can make a difference. Obviously, it's a long road ahead. But the only way to change attitudes is by your own example, right? If your colleagues will see that they were really treating somebody who was a human being, but just a mental illness patient, they were treating them less than human, and you intervene, you may not be a psychiatrist, but you have that empathy, then they will really take that seriously. So it's, it's just like, you know, small, small baby steps, you know, that's what it is. Yeah, I think it's hard because it just feels like such a big problem and you want to be able to do more. That's why any chance I get or any chance like, you know, my colleagues who are also very passionate about this issue. This is what we try to talk about that, you know, uh, future doctors, you know, current doctors, residents, interns, students, and our own colleagues, you know, if we can all just point this out that, listen, guys, any one of our own family member or a friend or or a relative might suffer from a mental illness. We just need to have an open mind and an open heart, you know, about how to how to deal with uh, mental illness and people who are suffering. That's, that's the bottom line. You know? Yeah, very true. So one thing I wanted to ask you is that I think in psychiatry in particular, it can be really emotionally challenging to deal with the patient. So how do you deal with that emotion and how do you not take it home with you too often? Yeah, definitely. It, it is a challenge and you try your best to leave it at work. But obviously, you know, you're, you, you're only human and you're not a robot that you can just shut off the switch. You know, it, it doesn't work like that. And every now and then there are certain cases that are so heartbreaking that you just, you keep thinking about that when you go home, you know? So what I, I try to do is, you know, whenever, when you feel there is too much load, share it, right? So when there's too much pain, share it. What I try to do is if there is something, my God, it was such an unbelievable patient that it was a heartbreaking story. And, you know, it's really shaking me. I come home and I, I just kind of, without breaking any confidentiality, of course, I, I just talk about it at home with my family. And we discuss that, well, I mean, we see and hear a lot of things, but look what happened today. And look what kind of, a, you know, and every now and then you see, you get some feedback you get. So it becomes like a positive experience, you know, that you you talk about a very, very challenging situation at home and you kind of like, you know, brainstorm with each other. And then it, it kind of like, you know, you, you are sharing that stress that you had and then by sharing gets less and, and you get some good feedback, you know, from uh, people around you, whether your family or friends. So that is one thing. And the other biggest thing is, like I told you, I try to make sure to have whatever other outlets I have to have at least a little bit, you know, time, get busy in something else. So of course, with me, <laughs> with the sports, of course, I got play. <laughs> Plenty of stress for my teams, you know, because they only lose. <laughs> so, so yeah, that that kind of like you know uh, gives you some other avenues. You know? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just gonna move on to the last two questions. I don't want to keep it too long. Uh, so the last, second last question is: If you could give yourself any piece of advice as a medical student, what would it be? I mean, if I had to give advice to myself, because depending on my own career and my own experience, I would have paced myself better not to just cram. Because back home in Pakistan, the whole uh, concept used to be that the last three months, you basically go in hibernation. So all of us used to be in the dorm rooms and day and night, that's all you do. No one shaves. Everyone's got like a big <laughs> beard. And then, you know, all you're doing is just studying and practicing studying. And then the worst thing I personally saw 
people having breakdowns during those because you cram everything. How much can an average person handle, you know? And of course, the first like eight to nine months, things were kind of sometimes too relaxed, you know? So we, we would learn it the hard way. So I think if I had to give my own self, like, you know, doing going back and doing it again, I would pace myself properly, you know, better not to just cram everything in the last three months. Okay, our last question is, is there anything I didn't ask about that you think is important to talk about or touch on? Um. Just one one thing I, I would say that, you know, I, I try to tell my, my students that besides being a doctor, try to think of the patient's problems. Don't just have like a tunnel vision. Let's say you are a psychiatrist. You're only going to treat his psychosis or his depression and just give him medications and therapy. And that's it. I mean, a small example is that, you know, I tell a lot of the residents who I am training that you have to also think after you are done with the patient, when he goes back out in the community, can you put your patient in the best position to succeed, meaning not to have a relapse? So don't just think of treating the patient in that acute episode. Think about the future also, about the future well-being of that patient. So for a small example, I'll give you is that some of the times a lot of my residents would get very frustrated that they would admit a patient and treat the patient on an acute psych ward, sometimes even for a month, right? And they stabilize them, they adjust the medication, they get better, then they discharge them, right? And what happens? And this is not in the VA. VA is different. I'm talking about Westchester, right? And what happens? The patient sometimes gets sick again and within a month or so back again right away and then the, the residents would get very frustrated i i spent so much time helping him getting him better and here he goes out and he didn't do his job and he's back again so you get frustrated and pointing fingers at the patient then but in reality you know what happens if you really review the, the situation so many times you know we are living in a very very difficult times of managed care health insurance not everybody has health insurance right so you have to not just be a doctor but think about their whole situation. So, so many times the resident would admit a patient with psychosis or depression and they'll start them on some fancy uh, SSRI, right? Eh, Lexapro or uh, acetylopram, except they never even ask whether the patient has insurance or not, or patient has just, you know, like something very like crappy insurance. And that Lexapro in the hospital, you were able to give him for those 20 days that you kept him, right? The day you discharge the patient, you give the prescription, you thought, ah, oh, patient will fill the prescription and then everything will be good. Hello, the poor guy didn't have insurance or had really bad insurance, which was never covering that medication. So that one piece we totally forgot. Oh, hello, we are living in the real difficult times when people sometimes don't even have enough money for their own food. They start rationing their own insulin sometimes, right? So think about that on a human level. So sometimes, you know, when my residents would present a case to me in the ER, when they're about to admit somebody, so the patient's coming in with these, these, these symptoms, okay, uh, how about I start him on this mood stabilizer or this antidepressant? I said, just find out, does he have insurance? Because if the patient does not have insurance or very bad, you know, coverage, then at least start him on some simple, cheap kind of medication that once you stabilize him, he'll be able to continue taking that medicine on the outside. Because, you know, there's this thing that I always tell my residents that both in Walmart and, and I think Walgreens, there's this formulary of a $4 a month prescription, a full month supply of medication, like genetic meds that they can afford, like Haldol or Prozac, they can afford 
$4 for the whole month. So if somebody does not have health insurance, start them on some medicine that you will stabilize them, but they'll be able to continue taking them. So think about after you're done with the patient. Similarly, if there is a guy who's got serious addiction issues, right? So fine, you are going to detox him with the alcohol or opioids. But think about once he leaves your service, how are you going to help him stay clean and abstinent? So maybe start him on something like naltrexone or suboxone or something that in the future, he will not relapse right away and try to put him in the best position to succeed. So that is one big point as doctors, I try to tell my my you know residents that don't only think about when you are treating them at that time, but try to think about after you send him out into the real world, can you put him in the best position to succeed? So those, those are the things that I try to remind them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's why the biopsychosocial model is so important to learn about too, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Dean, for joining me and also just for being such a good advocate for your students and your patients. You are very welcome. It was definitely my pleasure. We had a a very nice discussion. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you again, Dr. Dean, for that great discussion. We hope that this episode has got you thinking a little bit more about how we can advocate for our patients and for each other, especially considering the stigma that still exists for mental health, both in the general public and also in the medical community. As always, we'd like to give a huge shout out to Matthias Palmer for his amazing audio editing skills, and we'll see you next month.